Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's great to see you all this morning as it is every Sunday, be able to worship with you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's my privilege today to be able to preach the word. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 119. Turn to Psalm 119 for the last time. Wow, it's weird to say that. (laughs) Hopefully it's not the last time ever. (laughs) Ah, But it is the last time for now as we end this incredible psalm, verses 169 to 176. The Tav stanza, as you see there in your Bibles. What an incredible psalm. I've been so blessed by being able to study this all summer. I hope you've been as blessed as we have been as a staff to just be saturating in the psalm all summer long. And this last stanza does not disappoint. It is a fitting conclusion to this amazing chapter in Scripture. So Psalm 119, verses 169 to 176. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Let me pray. Father, what a gift your word is to us. Remind us of our desperate need for you, of how we've fallen short, of how we are still broken and needy because of our sin, but also reminding us of the hope we have in Christ. I pray as we dive into your word this morning that your word would confront us, that your spirit would go to work on our hearts and soften our hearts so that we can understand your word. Open our eyes that we might see the glories that you have for us in your law. And unite our hearts to fear your name so that we might glorify your great name forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I would imagine I'm not alone in this, but I absolutely love reading Christian biographies. It's one of my favorite things. I have been so blessed and so encouraged by so many biographies in my life. Especially at times when I'm struggling when I have a hard time seeing how God is at work in my own life sanctifying me, or when my study of the word or study of theology can grow stagnant, when it can feel at times as an academic exercise, it's a wonderful escape to go into another time, isn't it? To go into another place and to see how God was at work in another saint's life. I mean, I can think of so many biographies that had a profound impact on my life. Missionary biographies like Jim Elliott or David Brainerd or Amy Carmichael, or even pastoral biographies like John Bunyan or Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The boldness of these men and women to share the gospel in the face of adversity is such an encouragement to me, and has been over many occasions. But these biographies, even though they can be a tremendous encouragement, there can still be a danger in a way of reading Christian biographies. The danger is simply this, that sometimes as we read these biographies, we can develop an unrealistic view of the Christian life. Because often a Christian biographer might take someone's life and kind of maximize their virtues, maximize the good things about their life, and really just minimize their faults. 
minimize their sin and their flaw. They kind of clean their life up for, in a way to make them more heroic, to make them more admirable. And in the process, they make them more unrealistic and unrelatable, almost the sinless superhero in a way. Now, in some ways, we can hardly blame them, right? We love heroes. You can see that in our culture. There's endless supply of superhero movies. In the church, we love heroes as well, don't we? We're even taught to follow the examples of others, follow them as they follow Christ. It wasn't that long ago we were in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, week after week, seeing these great saints and how God used them. It's such an encouragement to us to see these things. But even though we can see the glories of God at work in other people, we can sometimes lose sight that our greatest heroes are still weak. They're still frail. They're still sinful people just like us. And this, by the way, is why I love the Bible. I love the Bible. It doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't try to make this kind of hagiography, blowing these people up to be unrealistic and more perfect than they really are. No, the Bible is relentless. It gives us an incredibly accurate picture of the human condition, doesn't it? Sometimes a scary picture of the human condition and the human heart. It shows our heroes at their best, and it shows them at their worst. And you'll see that when we get into Genesis starting next week. It reminds us over and over and over again that even our heroes desperately need Jesus to die for them. And that's exactly what we see in this last stanza of this psalm as well. Amazingly, after 22 stanzas, 176 verses of some of the best poetry ever written, David ends in an incredible, unexpected way. We'd expect him to end on this high note. Look, this is what the Word of God can do in your life. Look at the joy and the peace and the excitement the Word of God can bring. But he doesn't end on just a high note. He doesn't also end on just a low note in despair and regret and lament like some of the other psalms in the Psalter. No, David actually ends with three struggles, three tensions that are really a part of all of our lives as we follow Christ. And that's what I want us to look at today. There are three tensions in this text. I'm sure there are way more in the Christian life, but here in the stanza, there are three tensions, three struggles in the Christian life that can only be resolved in Christ. And the world sees these struggles and they think, no way, this kind of tension can't exist. These things can't coexist. They don't go together. But for us as Christians, this is everyday life. We live in this tension of the fallen world and the word of God reminds us of this tension so that we can run to Jesus and cling to him even more. And so what are these tensions? The three tensions in this text I want to point to are first, pleading with God and then praising God. Pleading with God and praising God in verses 169 to 172. And then the second one is helpless but still hopeful in verse 173 to 175. In the last verse, the tension is between a sheep and a servant. And so we see pleading and praising, helpless and hopeful, and then sheep and servants. So let's dive into 169 as we see pleading. He's going to plead with the Lord. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. After 22 stanzas, you've probably gotten used to this. <laughs> We've seen this so many times. David calling out for God, crying out to God, desperate once again. And what is he desperate for? Well, he's desperate to be heard. 
Let my cry come before you, O Lord. This language here is that let my cry have an audience. Let my cry make an appearance before you, God. It's really worship language like you might see in Leviticus or you might see in Hebrews. It's David personifying his cry, acting like his cry is a priest drawing near to God in the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice. Or his cry is a messenger trying to desperately draw near the throne where he has no right of being, but he's desperate for help. David's picturing that cry here. Let my cry make an appearance before the holy God because I'm that desperate. What's he desperate for? Look at the next part of the verse. Give me understanding. Give me discernment, insight, wisdom. And where does that come from? According to your word. That's our cry as well, isn't it? We are so desperate for understanding. We may have the knowledge but we take that knowledge and we still do foolish things, don't we? We desperately need God to answer this cry, a cry for discernment. We need God to illumine our minds, to help us have wisdom and as we understand the word. And that's what David's praying for here. But he's praying for more than that. He doesn't just want to understand the word. He wants to be able to wisely use the word, wisely apply the word to his life. He wants to see the world through the lens of Scripture to be transformed by the word from the inside out. I really think in a lot of ways he's saying the same thing that Paul does in Romans 12, verse two. Don't let me be conformed to this world, but let me be transformed by the renewal of my mind through the word. So David wants to be transformed. He wants wisdom and discernment to be able to honor God with his life. He continues his plea, 170. Let my plea... Come before you. There's that language again, the worship language. Now, I know we look at that verse and think, well, that's just the same verse almost. It's just taking cry out and putting plea in. But this picture here, this word plea, is actually a compound Hebrew word that has a lot to do with grace. So a better translation here might actually be, let my plea for grace come before you. Let my prayer for favor, for mercy Come before you. David's praying, give me grace. I'm in trouble. I'm desperate. I desperately need your grace and mercy in my life. Why? Look at the rest of verse 170. Deliver me according to your word, just as your word has promised. Now, David's been in a lot of trouble throughout this whole psalm. Enemies from the outside. But this doesn't seem to be deliverance in a physical way. Asking God to transform him from the inside out. Asking for discernment. Later on, admitting to straying like a lost sheep. The internal struggle seems like he's begging for spiritual deliverance, not just physical deliverance. My guess, it's actually both. It's David saying, Lord, save me from myself. Save me from my wicked heart. Save me from my sin. And save me from the struggles I have with this fallen world all around me. Can you hear David's pleas? He's desperate. He's desperate to be heard. He's desperate for understanding, desperate for grace and for deliverance. And then all of a sudden, without any warning, he completely switches gears. He goes from such a low note to a completely high note, from a minor key in musical sense to a major key. He goes from pleading, desperation, dependence to praise and worship. 
Look at verse 171. My lips will pour forth praise. My lips will overflow, bubble over. The imagery here is like this fountain, this stream that just never stops. It just keeps going and going. My lips are just going to be this fountain of praise and worship. How can that be? You were just pleading with the Lord. For, verse 171, you teach me your statutes. You teach me your word. In other words, I know that the discernment, the wisdom I just pleaded for will come to me because you will teach me like you always have. Verse 172, he continues to sing. My tongue will sing of your word. Why? For all your commandments, all your promises are right. They're true. They're reliable. Did you notice what it was that caused David to praise God? It wasn't that all of his prayers were answered. We don't know what kind of deliverance this was. That didn't seem to come. The discernment may have come, but it seems like there's still more to come. He hasn't received grace yet. What was it that caused him to sing out like this? It was God's word, the word that is right, the word that is dependable. We might think, well, how in the world is it possible for him to plead with God and then turn around and praise him? How does the word do that in us? Well, the word does that by pointing us to the one that will answer every single one of our pleas. The word of God shows us, like it shows David, that Jesus is the one to deliver us from our greatest enemies. Jesus is the one to deliver us from death and sin and Satan once and for all. It was Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection that purchased grace for us, that delivers us from our sin. It was Jesus, as Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says this, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the one that freed us from sin. And it's not just that. Jesus is the one that's given us access to God. He opened the way to the holy of holies so our pleas, our prayers can make an appearance before God. With his body being broken and his blood being shed and that curtain being torn, we can walk into the holy of holies with confidence. Not even the earthly holy of holies, the heavenly holy of holies. Before the throne of God, knowing that our pleas, our prayers can be heard. And not only that, he intercedes for us. So our mumbling and bumbling prayers actually get heard like they should. So that our needs get met like they should. Hebrews 7, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus has done everything we needed to be right with God, and he's also the one to send the Spirit to give us understanding, to give us discernment, to help us discern his word and wisely apply it. John 14, 16 to 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is the answer to all of our pleas. In him, we have been saved. In him, we have been adopted, reconciled to God at peace with him forever. How do we respond to such incredible news? We keep pleading. We keep praying. 
Because guess what? We keep sinning. The victory's not finished yet. We go to him pleading for grace, pleading for deliverance, pleading for peace and understanding, and we turn around and praise him. Because it's the word of God and the reality of the gospel that leads us to praise the God who has saved us and will continue to save us. Oh, I know it's difficult at times, such a struggle at times to praise God, especially when it seems your pleas, your prayers go unanswered. And it seems like they don't even escape the room and God is not hearing you. You come to church and you don't feel like praising God. I have good news for you this morning. If that's you this morning, if you're here and you struggle with praise, you're pleading, but you just can't get to that place. If it's God's word that reminds us of Christ, that gets us to the point we praise him, that's all we do here in corporate worship. It's saturated with God's word for a reason. You'll hear God's word read and prayed and preached. You'll see God's visible word with the sacraments the picture of the gospel. You'll hear the saints confess, plead with God, and then turn around and praise him. Because that's the way it works when you've been redeemed. It will remind you of that wonderful gospel that will lead our lips to spill forth in praise, even though we still plead with God for grace. That's the tension in all of our lives, that we're both pleading with God and praising him. Now let's look at the second tension in this text, which is helpless but still hopeful. And you'll notice right away, he goes from that high note again, that major key, right back down to a low note as he describes his own helplessness in verse 173. Let your hand be ready or present to help me. That might seem strange. Why is David asking for God's hand? Does he literally mean a giant hand? Is that what's going on here? I sure hope not because otherwise it's God's giant nostrils that wiped out Pharaoh's army. That passage in Exodus 15, 8 says, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. It's not a literal hand, just like it's not literal nostrils here. No, God doesn't have a body like us. God is spirit. These are anthropomorphisms. They're pictures of God. They're figurative language, giving God human characteristics to describe something about him. And when David refers to God's hand, his arm, especially his right hand, He's saying, let your powerful work draw near to me and help me because I'm helpless. I continue to need your help. In fact, it's the very passage I talked about with the nostrils where Moses says this, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So David says, would you draw near to help me because I'm helpless. I've come to the end of myself. As I was studying this week, I was reminded of trying to teach my kids to ride a bike. I'm sure everybody has been through those situations, whether you're the parent teaching your kids or you've been the child yourself. The process starts the same with all of us, doesn't it? We take the training wheels off, there's excitement, there's nervousness, and as the kid hops on the bike, what's the first thing they say? You know it, don't let go, don't let go, right? Hold my seat, in fact, run along with me, and if you do let go, You have to stay right next to me because I'm going to fall at any second. I'm going to fall over. I can't do this on my own. You need to be close. You need to be near because I know I'm going to need you. In many ways, that's a lot like what David is pleading here. Lord, would you draw near to catch me when I fall, to help me because I'm desperate? You know there's a point when this analogy breaks down, a point when all analogies do, really. 
Because eventually that child that you are so close to and holding along the way, eventually they get it and they take off without you. You might even try to run after them and they're like, no, dad, I'm good. They take off and say, no, I don't need you anymore. I've got this. I'm good on my own. We never get to that place with God. We never get to the point where we can say, Lord, I've got this. I don't need you anymore. We never get to say, Lord, I'm sanctified enough. I'm holy enough. I'm strong enough. I've grown enough where I don't need you anymore. Every single believer, every single Christian is helpless in and of themselves to get themselves home. And so we beg, we plead, just like David here, for help. And he continues to show us his helplessness. Look at verse 174. I long for your salvation. Why is he longing for it? Because he doesn't have it yet. He is saved. It's begun in him, but it's not finished. He's saying, Lord, I know your deliverance will come. I know salvation will come, but it can't come soon enough. I'm groaning here, waiting for the salvation that has begun in me to finish. Have you ever felt that way? I imagine the picture of a watchman, like we sang earlier, of a watchman at night, on guard, ready, because the enemy could sneak up right underneath them in the shadow of darkness, always on guard, always worried, but looking for that sunrise looking for that moment when the sun rises and the struggle is over. He can let down his guard. There's finally peace. He can see the enemies coming for a long way off. David's saying, I long for that sunrise. I long for the salvation. I long for you to finish what you started. Yes, he's trusting in Jesus. Yes, he's saved here. But he's longing for the conclusion of that. When the presence of sin will be gone forever. Really, he's longing for heaven. He's homesick, desperate. That's why verse 175 says, let my soul live and praise you. He's right back to pleading with God. The same pleas in 169. Do you notice that? I need life. I want to praise you. Lord, I'm desperate. I'm helpless. I'm homesick. I long for your salvation. But even in my helpless state, I still have hope. You probably already got a glimpse of that, didn't you? In these first halves of these verses, but the second half actually shows us more hope. Go back to 173. 173, when he says, let your hand be ready to help me. How does he know that God would be ready to help him like that? For I have chosen your precepts. Maybe think, well, that's a weird reason. Why is he saying I've chosen your precepts? How is that his hope for God's help? We have to think this is covenant language. Language that you might hear in Deuteronomy 30. As Moses lays out the choices before God's people, and he says this, Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I've set before you today life and good and death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, then you shall live. But if you turn away and you are drawn away to the worship of other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Listen, therefore, choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. David's saying, I've chosen life. I've covenanted with you, God. I've trusted you with my life. And all of those promises you said, I know they're mine because you're a faithful God. You will keep your covenant. And so my hope rests in that covenant. My hope is that you will be ready to help me with your powerful right hand. He says 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your delight is my law. The law reminds him of what's coming. 
Salvation is coming. And so the law reminds him that God will save. And so he delights in the law. Verse 175, let my soul live and praise you and let your rules, your promises help me. Isn't that amazing? He started with being helpless. Helpless. Lord, I need you. I've run out of resources. I've come to the end of myself. But as helpless as I am, I know I'm not truly helpless because I have your word. Your word is my help. Your word is my hope. Even when I feel helpless, I can still hope in your word because your word gives me promises even from the very beginning that you will fix this, that the seed of the woman will come and crush Satan and sin for good. He will come and seek out the helpless. He will bring an end to sin and rebellion into my wicked heart, defeat Satan, sin, and death forever, and raise us from the dead to open wide the way to our heavenly home. Jesus is our great hope our hope for eternity, our hope that we'll make it home one day. 1 Peter 1, verses 3-4, through Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And listen, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what David was longing for. And in Christ, we can see that God keeps his promises. God keeps his covenant. He has fulfilled our hope. In Christ, he has done everything we needed to be reconciled to God, to be welcomed into heaven, to be righteous, justified, and then glorified. And in Christ, it's God's powerful right hand that is always ready to help. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the promises that are true in Christ. And so we've seen two of the tensions, the pleading, the praising, the helpless, and the hopeful. Let's look at the last verse as we see this final tension in the Christian life between a sheep and a servant. Verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. What an end to this incredible psalm. Did you expect that? Not what I expected. Probably not what most of us expected. If we've read through the entire psalm, 175 verses extolling the glories of God's word and how God uses his word to minister to us. Some of the best poetry that's ever existed. When David is carefully picking every word making sure every verse has two lines. Now in this last verse, he breaks his pattern. Three lines in this last verse. He still keeps the alphabetic acrostic alive, but he says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. It doesn't even sound like the same man, does it? The same man who said this in verse 20, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Verse 139, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Verse 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. And perhaps most shocking of all, verse 110, the wicked, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but I, I do not stray from your precepts. How can David say he's gone astray? He's using the language of the Israelites in the wilderness. 
In Psalm 95, saying these people go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Has David abandoned God? Has he walked away? Is he backsliding here? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I can say that with confidence because the verse isn't over yet. Keep reading. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Even at his worst, when he makes a humbling admission of his own struggle, I've gone astray like a lost sheep, he's still conscious of his need for grace, isn't he? He still wants God to bring him home. He's basically acknowledging, I want to come home. I need to come home. I don't know the way. I can't get myself back to you. I think of the words of Augustine when he says, we are sufficient of ourselves to commit sin, but not to return to the way of righteousness. These are not the desires of somebody in open rebellion against God. Someone in open rebellion doesn't want to come home. It's not a desire of somebody to call themselves a servant if they're walking away. He calls himself a servant by the very definition. You are putting yourself under somebody else's authority. If you're walking away from God, you've dethroned him in your heart. You've apostatized by walking away. You're in charge now. You're on the throne. That's not what David's doing here. Seek your servant. I haven't abandoned you. I'm just in trouble. I need you to come get me. I'm still submitting to you. And I'm submitting to your law. Look at the rest of the verse. For I do not forget your commandments. This goes back to what I said before. As helpless as we could possibly be as believers, we still have hope in the law. Amazing enough, with an admission of being a sheep and struggling, it's the law that would condemn his struggle, wouldn't it? But it's also the law that gave him hope, that gives him confidence that God will come and rescue his servant. Are these the word of somebody abandoning God? I certainly hope not, because it sounds an awful lot like me. And honestly, it sounds an awful lot like you and every other believer that I've ever known. It sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said on the night before he died on the cross, when he asked his disciples to pray, and they kept falling asleep. Do you remember what he said? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Or like Paul in Romans 7 when he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. You ever been there? (laughs) For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you see the tension? Do you see the war there? I'm weak. I struggle. But I want deliverance. I desire deliverance. And what's Paul's solution? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the only one to settle this tension. So when David talks about being a sheep and a servant, he's not saying, I was an unbeliever and then I'm a believer. He's not comparing those two. He's not comparing his life before Christ and his life afterward. David with Paul And Jesus is acknowledging the tension in every believer between the old man, the old nature, the flesh, and the new man, the spirit that has been given to us by Christ. He's acknowledging this battle that will exist until he returns and puts an end to it for good. 
As that great hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, the insanity of it. I don't want to leave the God I hate. I want to leave the God I love. It doesn't even make sense. This tension is driving me crazy. And what does the hymnal do? Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. I can't handle this anymore. I'm trying, but I don't trust myself. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. This struggle between the spirit and the flesh is not an evidence of apostasy, of walking away from the Lord. It's an evidence of growth. It's an evidence that salvation is being worked out in you. J.C. Ryle says this in his wonderful book on holiness. Every believer has a struggle within the heart, between the old and the new nature, between the flesh and the spirit, which are to be found together in every believer. A sense of that struggle and a vast amount of mental discomfort from it are no proof, listen to this, that a man is not sanctified. Rather, I believe they are healthy symptoms of our condition and prove that we are not dead, but alive. A true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as his peace. This is the tension that exists in all of us if we've trusted the Lord. Each and every one of us, in a way, is a sheep and a shepherd. And that will only be fixed in Christ. Because as it says, Jesus is the one who has saved us, who is saving us, and will save us. The work has begun. We've been justified. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been given the Spirit of God, and that's when the battle began. There was no battle, no tension before that. But we've been given the Spirit of God, and He is saving us. He is sanctifying us. He's making us holy, conforming us to the image of His Son. And He will complete His work one day when He returns. When He seeks His servants for good. To deliver us from the presence of sin. To glorify His saints. And then, and then only, will this tension go away. So what do we do until then? How do we live with this struggle, this battle within our soul between the spirit and the flesh as sheep and a servant? Well, let me give you three suggestions as we move forward in this. First, be patient with yourself and with other people, other believers. Look, the Christian life is filled with struggles. It's also filled with victories. Rejoice in the victories. Look for the victories. Praise God for the victories, but be patient with the struggles. None of us gets victory over sin overnight. Most of us don't even get it over a number of years. Be patient. Get comfortable with the process of sanctification and trust the Lord with the process. Trust the Lord. Don't compare and say, he's growing a lot more than me. She's not growing nearly as enough as me. Be patient and trust the Lord. Pray for your brothers and sisters rather than judge them. Pray for them. Preach the word to them because it's God that sanctifies us through his word. So be patient. Number two, remember, you are still a sheep. Maybe you're the type of person who reads the psalm and you think, wow, what a horrible ending. This is not the Christian life. This is not what I signed up for. How could David be that weak? How could his flesh be that strong? I have no problem seeing myself as a servant, but a sheep? I mean, look at these other Christians around me. There is no way I would fall like that. No way I would struggle like that. I guess I just must take this more seriously than they do. 
I must really know what I'm supposed to do. If there's any of that kind of pride, that self-reliance in your heart, repent. Repent before you fall, because you will. Because even the strongest servants still need a shepherd, because they're still sheep. Be patient, remember you're still a sheep, and remember you're still a servant. Maybe the opposite's true of you. Maybe you have a hard time seeing your servant because you feel like that lost sheep 24-7. The struggle with sin in the flesh is so overwhelming to you that you can never praise God. You can never find hope. You can never really truly feel like a servant because you're stuck in your sin. You need to know that even though the flesh is strong and sin does remain in your body, it doesn't reign over you in Christ. It has no dominion over you in Christ. The power of sin has been broken in Christ and we have victory in him. He's made us a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are a servant of Christ. Even when you can't see it, the battle is evidence that you are being sanctified. And look, I know that battle can be ugly. It gets ugly when sin is finally exposed, but if sin is never exposed, it can never be dealt with. Don't lose hope. You are still a servant, and you are still a sheep, and you have a great shepherd who will bring you home one day. Let me encourage you with the words of John Newton. We'll sing his great hymn, Amazing Grace, in just a few minutes. And if you know anything about John Newton, he was a slave trader. By the world's standards, a horrible sinner. I want you to hear the tension in these few lines that he gives in his letters here. He says this to a struggling brother, struggling with his faith. He says, I can acknowledge that I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be one day. But by God's grace, I am not what I was. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, We praise you because you have awakened spiritual life in us. You've given us life when we were dead in our sins. And even though there's a struggle, even though there's a tension between our spirit and our flesh, we know the victory will be won. Your son has already made sure that that will happen, and he will come again to free us from sin forever. Oh, Father, help us to hope in him. Help us navigate this tension well where we plead for grace And we praise your great name to acknowledge our helplessness, our dependence on you, but to still have hope to rest that we are a sheep, but we have a good shepherd who will seek his servant. And we pray this in the name of our great shepherd. Amen.